Hear the word of the Lord. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, an eloquent speaker who knew the scriptures well, had arrived in Ephesus from Alexandria in Egypt. He had been taught the way of the Lord, and he taught others about Jesus with an enthusiastic spirit and with accuracy. However, he only knew about John's baptism. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him preaching boldly in the synagogue, they took him aside and explained the way of God even more accurately. Apollos had been thinking about going to Achaia, and the brothers and sisters in Ephesus encouraged him to go. They wrote to the believers in Achaia, asking them to welcome him. When he arrived there, he proved to be of great benefit to those who by God's grace had believed. He refuted the Jews with powerful arguments in public debate. Using the scriptures, he explained to them that Jesus was the Messiah. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. Well, we've been in the book of Acts for a while, and this is kind of one of those flyover passages here in Acts 18 where you, you, it seems kind of in between the action. Uh, but it's, it's one of my favorite parts. Um, it's easy to skim, but it, it, I think it puts one of the most beautiful realities of the gospel on display for us. And I, I want to take some time to try to show, show you how, what, what it's putting on display for us. And so first we got to talk about the characters. There's some interesting people in this story. First, you got Paul, who we've talked about a lot, second best Christian of all time, started a whole bunch of churches, wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, uh, we've talked a lot about him. Then uh, we've got this couple, uh, Aquila and Priscilla. And if you want to enter into a fruitless Bible debate, a lot of people argue why. One time he's men- it's mentioned Aquila and Priscilla, and then it switches to Priscilla and Aquila. And everyone wants to try to make some big theological interpretation of that. No idea, but that's what happens in the Bible. And do with it what you will. Uh, they are Jews who are deported from Italy. You can read about this. If, uh, if you want to flesh out the story some, go home and read the rest of chapter 18, the, the stuff before it, 1 through 23. Um, so that means the government kicked them out of Italy. They kicked them out of Rome. And so now they're here living as exiles. And uh, the previous portion of chapter 18 tells us that they lived with Paul They worked with Paul, um, making tents. Uh, They did ministry with Paul, so they'd work all day. They'd go home at night and, you know, I don't know, play Yahtzee or something like that. And on the weekends, Paul would go preach in synagogues. Uh, Maybe, I love Christians sometimes will take passages in the Bible and make really like cheesy Christian phrases that make everyone who didn't grow up in church uncomfortable. Uh, And so maybe you've heard people talk about tent-making Christians or someone's like, yeah, I wanna go, I'm starting a tent-making ministry. And everyone's like, why would you build tents? It's 2017, right? This is what they're talking about. They're essentially saying, you know, I'm gonna spend my life uh, doing some job. I'm gonna be an electrician. I'm gonna, whatever, own a coffee shop. I'm gonna do something so that I can do ministry, uh, but I'm gonna make money in a more traditional way, like what Paul, Priscilla, and Aquila are doing here. And that's where they get this phrase, a tent-making ministry from. Uh, Paul decides uh, a few verses earlier than our story today to move on to Ephesus. Uh, And these are the people that he would write the book of Ephesians for, which we preached through a little while ago. You can find all those sermons online. Uh, And it, it shows us uh, how good of friends he is with Priscilla and Aquila. He asks them to come with him and they agree. So they're the kind of friends where it's, I don't know if maybe someone in your community group has given you the pitch where it's like, hey, I'm gonna start a church in Phoenix. I want you to quit your job, sell your house, move to the other side of the country with me. And you're like, really? 
That's the kind of friends that Paul was with Priscilla and Aquila. And they say, yes. So they're all gearing up to go to Ephesus. And that's where we meet our next character, this dude, Apollos. We don't get um, an age for him. I just get the sense that he's a younger guy. Uh, It says that he's arrived from Alexandria, which we're going to talk about in a second. I think he's just out of college. The text doesn't really say, but it seems that way to me. Um, But, you know, hard to say, really. Uh, Verse 24. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, an eloquent speaker who knew the scriptures, had arrived in Ephesus from Alexandria in Egypt. He had been taught the way of the Lord, and he taught others about Jesus with an enthusiastic spirit and with accuracy. So in Alexandria, Alexandria is in northern Egypt, which if you're really struggling, is in Africa, which is not over here, right? It's the big country, uh, where are we right now? That way from us, okay? It's east, it's to the right if you look on a map. It's a huge continent, and it's towards the top by the Mediterranean Sea. And in Alexandria, there was this really famous school. And so think about like Cambridge, Oxford, Princeton, Harvard, all rolled into one. When, when you heard Alexandria, they went to Alexandria, that's what it would have sounded like, the prestige, kind of the cultural elites. A lot of the books, if you went to college and read a really old book, it was probably preserved or translated or some way or another made its way through the library that was in Alexandria or the school that was in Alexandria. The world's elites were educated in Alexandria. And so uh, this guy, Apollos, he's a pretty sharp guy. Uh, The text says he's an eloquent speaker. It says that he knew the scriptures well. And when the New Testament says the scriptures, this is just like a little, we're gonna give you some little nuggets for how to read the Bible throughout the sermon. When the New Testament talks about the scriptures, it's talking about the Old Testament, which means if you're a Christian, you should be reading the Old Testament because the New Testament speaks really highly of the Old Testament. That's just a little, little side note there for you. People who only read the New Testament. Because I make Old Testament jokes and you guys don't laugh, okay? I'm concerned about that. Read your Old Testament. New Testament likes the Old Testament. It says he's been taught the way of the Lord and he teaches about Jesus with an enthusiastic spirit and with accuracy. Uh, so, so listen, um, some, some people want to set up Apollos is this like bad guy in the text who's got to come and get blown up or something. And I just don't see it. Uh, He's an impressive guy. He's a Christian. um, He's a teacher. And he's just really talented. Uh, He's an impressive guy. Uh, He's Ivy League educated. He's just come from like one of the cultural centers of the world. He knew the Bible well. And when he spoke, people listened. And if, if you go home and you read the first chunk of Acts chapter 18, you'll see what contrast there is between Priscilla and Aquila and Apollos. And not, not so much that he's smart and they're dumb, but that you get like Priscilla and Aquila are like making tents, having dinner, like hanging out with Paul. And then all of a sudden Apollos is smart, good speaker, knew the scriptures, passionate, enthusiastic. You know, it's just the descriptions are so different of these two. Um, and to me, he kind of reminds me, some of you guys are in a community group, which is like our small groups that we meet throughout the week. He's kind of like the young guy that shows up at community group who's got like all of the answers, or he's the one who has real impressive theological sounding answers. Or maybe like somebody reads a verse and they're like, what translation is that? 
and then they pull out their big Bible and they're like, I read the NASB. And if you don't get that joke, you're probably in a good community group, you know? Because <laughs> the NASB is the Bible you read when you're serious about Bible reading, right? That's the only Bible. We don't, we're not King James only people anymore, but sometimes real brainy people are like, you can only read the NASB. Um, or maybe they'll be like, well, you know, I was reading in Calvin's Institutes the other day. And, you know, they're just the guy who's got like thick books or he just came out of seminary. Um, and it's not, like he's a, it's not like he's a jerk, but he's got a lot of good sounding words. He's got the best words, right? Like he's got big words, impressive words. And, and I don't think it's maybe even intentional with some of these dudes in the community group, but maybe the kind of guy that you get a little nervous to talk around, you know, because what if I say something wrong? Or what if I say something that's dumb? They can be the kind of guy that makes you feel a little inadequate or the kind of guy that, you know, is always on the hunt um, to, to find what you said wrong. Do you know anybody like that? That like you're so scared to talk to because they're going to find the one thing that you didn't say just perfect and blow it up. And now you're not a Christian and you're going to hell and I'm what, whatever. I don't think Apollos was that guy. I think we got a lot of those guys in community group though, but. I hear stuff like this all the time. And by all the time, I mean like a couple times a month. Um, you know, I didn't go to seminary, so maybe I shouldn't fill in the blank. Um, I haven't read all those books. I'm not as smart as you guys. We've got a lot of people in our church that went to Bible college or went to seminary. Um, and I think that's cool. That's fine. Um, but it can get weird. Uh, I think it has gotten weird in some ways. Now, all that to say, I think Apollos was one of those guys. Uh, he was one of the guys that you'd be maybe a little bit nervous around. I mean, you'd be a little bit intimidated by because he was brilliant. He was passionate. He was articulate. When people spoke, when he spoke, people listened. He was an impressive guy. Uh, but then the, the, the text describes, says something really funny about him. Uh, in verse 25, it says this. It says, however, he knew only about John's baptism. Now, some of you people who are a little more fundy have been waiting for us to talk about baptism for a long time. And I'm telling you, today's not the day, right? This is not the sermon about baptism. Um, it's saying he only knew about John's baptism. What in the world does that mean? Uh, here's another little Bible reading principle. When you find something in the Bible, I hope you guys read your Bible. It's, it's filled with crazy stories and fascinating stuff. When you find something in the Bible that doesn't make sense or seems a little confusing to you, before Googling it, because Lord knows what you'll find out there, before Googling it, see if other places in the Bible talk about it. Um, especially if you can find other places in the same book of the Bible that are talking about it. And guess what? There's another place in this book that talks about John's baptism in the book of Acts. And it's just a couple of verses later. So remember, they're going to Ephesus, right? And the, the uh, Apollos only is familiar with John's baptism. That's what's being said about him. He, he knew only about John's baptism. When they get to Ephesus, Paul runs, and this is just like three or four verses after our story. You can go read this in Acts 19. Paul encounters these guys in Ephesus and listen to this conversation. It starts in verse two. We've not even heard there is a Holy Spirit, these men say to Paul. So Paul asked, then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. 
So it's the same issue, right? You see what's going on? Uh, Apollos is only aware of John's baptism. Guys from the same town, the same group of believers, uh, they don't even know the Holy Spirit exists. All they're aware of is John's baptism. It's the same issue that's going on here. Um, I I think these people were Christians. Um, They were trying to follow Jesus. Apollos was proclaiming Jesus, uh, but there's, uh, there's something that was missing. Maybe there was a depth that was missing. And um, look, look how Priscilla and Aquila react to Apollos. I find this so interesting. Verse 26, when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, this is back in chapter 18, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. So there's some issue going on that seems common in Ephesus, but Priscilla and Aquila, notice it doesn't say they corrected him or they rebuked him or like they shouted him down or said what an idiot he was or called, they didn't call him a heretic or they didn't say like what a false ministry he had or you know what I'm saying? They treat him like a Christian and they, I love the phrase, they explain to him the way of God more adequately. They pull him aside and help him connect some dots that he's missing. This blue collar, unimpressive tent making couple pulls the Ivy League dude aside, invites him into their home and they have a little conversation with him. So what was he missing? What's the text trying to show us that he's missing? Well, let's start by talking about John's baptism. If that's what the group in Ephesus was, if that's all they knew, John's baptism, what does that represent? What does, what does that mean? Well, John the Baptist, his ministry was uh, to prepare the way for someone. Who, who is he to prepare the way for? Jesus, that's right. I know it's hot in here. I don't, it's not supposed to be 70 degrees in February, okay? And we've got, you know, the mice need to wake up to get the AC on. I don't know what the problem is. I need some crowd participation here. Um, John the Baptist was to prepare the way for Jesus. We don't get a lot of sermons from John the Baptist, but we do get the first words out of John the Baptist's mouth when he sees Jesus, which I think is a pretty fair summary of what Jesus or what John preached about Jesus. So in John chapter one, John sees Jesus, lots of J's here. John sees Jesus and says this, look, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I think that's a pretty fair summary of what John was preaching about Jesus. And I think Paul thought this too, because to those men back in Ephesus, back up in Acts chapter 19, he says to them, John's baptism called for repentance from sin. You see how those two are related? If John says Jesus uh, is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, an appropriate response, if Jesus takes away your sin, well, then you turn away from your sin. Those messages make a whole lot of sense. To believe John's message is to repent from your sin. Now, church, let me ask you, this is not rhetorical. Is this a true message? Has Jesus taken away the sin of the world? Yes, thanks be to God. Uh, Is an appropriate response to that repentance from sin? Yes, thanks be to God. This is likely what Apollos believed and preached. Is this the whole gospel? (gasps) Let the church get nervous, right? Oh, no, it's not the whole gospel. How do we know this? Well, let's look at the text. If this was the whole gospel, if there was no issue or if there was nothing lacking in what Apollos was proclaiming, why are Priscilla and Aquila inviting him to their home? You see, what, what are they clarifying for him? Or if, if he's not lacking anything, there's nothing to explain more adequately as the text puts it. You, you get what I mean? If he's got it all figured out or if he's explaining it completely, there's nothing that they can clarify for him. 
So there, there's something missing there. But then thankfully, again, remember, these people who are only believing in John's baptism are in Ephesus, which again, Paul wrote an entire letter to those people clarifying this very issue, the nature of the gospel. It's called the book of Ephesians. And I can, I can answer this question for you in two verses. Why is this... Uh, I don't know, what's lacking in this gospel or or why is the forgiveness of sins inadequate? Uh, What is the whole gospel? So here we go. You see what we're doing here by letting the Bible clarify what it's saying? We figured out using the Bible what John's baptism is and now we're gonna figure out using the Bible what the whole gospel is. It's beautiful. It's like God knew we would need help and he gave it to us. Thanks be to God. Ephesians chapter one. God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. Are you holy and without fault? Ooh, there we go. One lady's reading her Bible. She she raised her hand like, that's me. That's me. I'm the one. That was me. (laughs) Yeah. She said, in Christ I am, right? Because apart from Christ, you are not holy and without fault. If you think you are, come up front and we'll, we'll have free counseling for you afterwards, right? Or you're like a four-year-old, you know, like, no, nah, I'm not, I'm fine, I never did nothing wrong. Uh, you're jacked up. One of my favorite things about this church is we try to be really, un- we are under the assumption that if you found your way here today, you are messed up. And when you come in and your life's a wreck, there are no surprises, okay? Um, to be a Christian is to acknowledge that you are desperately in need of help. And that's why God sent us Jesus. Apart from Christ, we cannot be holy and blameless. And so God sent Christ to die on the cross for us. This Ephesians 1.4 is speaking to Christ's atoning work on the cross, that at the cross, Christ wiped away all of our sins so that in Christ, we can be viewed as holy and without fault. This is what John is saying. Behold the Lamb of God at the cross. He takes away the sin of the world, but we must see the cross was a means to an end. The the cross was so that God might achieve his ultimate goal. If we only have the message of John, the gospel ends at the forgiveness of sin which is good news to a degree. But imagine, this analogy doesn't really work because the Bible says you're dead. But imagine you're homeless, hungry, and $100,000 in debt. And you've been that way for years, 34 years. On the street, you're sick, you're hungry, and just beyond repair in debt. Someone comes up to you one day and is like, sister, I've got incredible news for you. I paid all of your debt today. Enjoy your afternoon. And there's a party that's like, one less thing, right? Like, that's great. Where am I going to sleep tonight? Where am I going to sleep tomorrow? What am I going to eat? That's an important question to answer. But that's not the only question to answer. You ever heard stories of missionaries going like out into the bush and handing out Bibles and preaching the gospel to people who've never heard about Jesus before. And they come back a month later and and the Aborigines ate the Bibles because they were hungry. It's like, hey, you get to go to heaven. It's like, great, can I have some food? But my point is, um, forgiveness of sins is, is good news, but it's not the best news. And it's certainly not the only news the gospel provides. In the next verse in Ephesians, Paul shows us 
the reason for the cross, for forgiveness. He says, God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. Why did God forgive our sins? So that we could be adopted into his family, so that we could be reunited with him, so that we could have a home, we could become a people, because he loved us, because it gave him such pleasure, he brought us home. So we have the the doctrine of our justification of the atonement of sin, but that is not the crown jewel of Christianity. The the best part of Christianity is the doctrine we call union with Christ, which means that because our sins are forgiven, we are united with him. What's true of Jesus is true of us. He makes his home in our souls. These guys didn't realize that the spirit of God, the spirit that hovered over the waters of creation, the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead would make his home in our hearts. So we couldn't just be, we wouldn't just be forgiven of our sins, we would be restored into relationship with God. We would have peace with God and peace with one another. The good news of the gospel is not simply that we get forgiven, it's that we get God. And it's this reality that Acts 18 is putting on display. The good news of the gospel is that we are invited into renewed relationship with God and with one another. So I want to I take a step back and consider what it's actually showing us. And I guess I just have two big ideas I want us to see. The first is that faith is about knowing God, not about knowing answers. And I encourage you, again, to go home and read the first two-thirds of Acts 18 so you can see the contrast between Priscilla, Priscilla and Aquila and Apollos. So with Priscilla and Aquila, they're in community. They're working with Paul. They're living with Paul. They're doing ministry with him. They're always together. The the relational reality of their world is, is just so clear as you're reading it. And then comes Apollos, this Lone Ranger Christianity, this Lone Ranger Christian who shows up by himself to preach the gospel by himself. Priscilla and Aquila are, are just totally held up as the ones who are healthy here or the ones who have... Uh, life with God understood. Yet isn't there something in us that feels drawn to Apollos? Like that we wish we had the impressive statistics or we wish we had the the cool job or the cool education or that skill set. We wish we were the, I don't know, charismatic speaker or the energetic person or, or whatever. Yet the text shows him to be someone who's isolated and who is missing a crucial component of our faith. And that is, that God has designed us for relationship with himself and with one another. See, when when your faith becomes primarily about what you know, information, uh, you'll focus on drawing lines. When your faith is driven doctrinally, who knows right, who walks right, who's in and who's out, you'll spend your time drawing lines or arguing with people. And so you'll spend your time trying to win instead of trying to love. And as far as I can tell, Jesus did not say, they'll know you're my disciples by how often you win a political debate on Facebook. Jesus will know you're my disciples by how often you belittle someone else's theology on Facebook. And listen, 
I have put years into my theology, right? I've put years into studying the Bible and I've gotten into lots of arguments about it. Like the pastors have worked very hard and the pastors of Sojourn Community Church have taken a lot of heat for what we believe, not just here, but around the country. Like I don't say any of this lightly, but Jesus did not say, they will know you're my disciples by how well you articulate what you believe. He says, they'll know you're my disciples by your love for one another. He says, how dare you say you love God and hate your brother? Perhaps the most controversial thing Jesus said is love your enemy. Show me somebody else within a thousand years of Jesus that said something like that. And you know what else you'll find? No one likes being around the kind of person that spends their time drawing lines. Have you ever noticed that? Because the longer, the more time you spend trying to define who's right and who's wrong, who's in and who's out, the more rigid you become as a person. Anyone who disagrees with you becomes a threat to you personally. And the longer you play that game, usually the angrier you get. And it's just really hard to be close to that kind of person. Which that person will typically say, it's not that I'm hard to be around, it's just that I'm right. And maybe you know who I'm talking about now. And this is not to say that what we believe doesn't matter. That just could not be further from the truth. But if your faith is purely about what you believe, you will be stuck in John's baptism. Because for Jesus, it was not about what you know. It was about who you are, or maybe more importantly, whose you are. And the goal of Jesus's life and ministry was to bring us home to God. This means all of life is fundamentally about knowing God and being in relationship with him. So if if you're the kind of person that feels drawn to big books and fancy words, hear me, I am glad you are here. I am one of those people. I like reading. I like the way books smell. I get excited about reading 11 books at a time. Like, I like it and I get it. Um, So I'm not at all downplaying the theologians in our church. I'm not at all downplaying seminary education. I'm not at all saying that we will be a church that doesn't care about doctrine. That's just not true. But I I just want you to be aware about the temptation towards that rigidity, about that temptation um, towards forgetting why what we believe matters. I'll tease the second point here in a second. Everything we believe is designed by God to be in service of relationship. And when when what we believe makes it harder and harder for us to be in relationship, we've gone sideways. So if that's you, if you're just attracted to precision, or you find yourself asking, is this right? Is this wrong? Are you in? Are you out? If that's you, I encourage you to go to a community group. If you're not in a community group, go to a community group. If you're in a community group, ask the people around you how they experience you and have the courage to receive it. Maybe you're doing great. Maybe you're doing great, and this is not a problem for you. If you're in a group where people don't talk much, ask your community group if that's your fault. Ask your community group leader if that's your fault. Do I make it hard for people in this group to talk? Have I become intimidating or have I made people? Because you guys know 
you guys know what it's like for that person who just is always just going to jump and correct you. I'm really stressed out. I've had a really hard week. Well, you know God's sovereign, right? And he's written every day of your life down before there was ever one of them. So you shouldn't really be stressed out. Okay, thanks. So I think the first big takeaway we see, faith is about knowing God, not knowing answers. That was the link that I think Apollos was missing. He knew the scriptures. He was smart. He was articulate, yet he was isolated and he was alone and he only knew John's baptism. He only knew about repentance from sin, not the joys of relationship with God. So second big takeaway I think we see, the life of faith is about building relationships, not building our resumes. Everything in creation exists for the relationships one way or another. I could do another 30 minutes on that, but I'm sweating, you're sweating, we all want to go home. Um, God exists in perfect community. Holy Spirit created us in his image, created us in community, right? Sees a man, it's not good for him to be alone, gives him a woman, they start singing, they start having babies, fill the earth and multiply, right? Exists in community. Look at the example of Paul, Priscilla, and Aquila. They're always together. They're always doing life together in ministry. At its core, the gospel is about relationships. The gospel is about relationships, first with God and then with one another. Consider how Priscilla and Aquila interact with Apollos. Again, the impressive Ivy League dude. If it was all about right answers, if doctrinal purity was priority number one, what would they have done? In our context, they probably would have sent like an angry text message to the pastor to go correct Apollos, right? You're like, well, they they didn't have text messages back then. That's why God wrote the Bible 2,000 years ago, to make it very clear that conflict should only happen face-to-face. Just go learn what that means, okay? Go learn what that means, all of you, okay? Every one of you. Side note. They, what do they do? You see, they had something to say to him. They had something to say to him, but that their concern wasn't just that he believed right, but that he be in relationship. Do you see that? So they pull him aside. Can you imagine how they could have shamed the guy, young guy at the front of his ministry? They could have blown him up right in front of everybody. What a waste, all that money. You know, Alexandria wasn't cheap, who knows? But you see what I'm saying? This older couple invites him over and it says they explained it to him more adequately. Like what a gentle phrase, right? They didn't yell at him. They didn't chew him out. They were patient. They were kind. They were gentle with him. They didn't get in a big fight. And this should be incredibly empowering to the older people in our church. Um, And in, in a church like ours, if you're wondering if you're one of the older people, I'm talking to the 40 and over crowd. I know that's not old, right? I'm not saying you are old. I'm saying typically in sojourn, if you're over 40, you're older, right? And typically at sojourn, we've done a great job of marginalizing you, of making you feel like, I mean, we've had people and the church, our church has never said this or believed this, but we've had young guys from around the country say, you know, at our church, we've got a policy, no age on the stage. Yeah, like all these cool church planting movements, like that's a phrase that got tossed around for a long time. Why? Because those young guys know what to do. Right? Like, I'm 34, and so maybe that explains why some, you're frustrated by some of the things we do here, okay? Like, I know, like we're working on it. Uh, my, my point is, 
the older people in our church, if you're 40 plus, you have a responsibility to help the younger generations out of the ditches in this church. Um, And we need you. Like you should read this text and feel incredibly privileged and burdened for your role in this church to help us younger idiots out. Um, Because think about it. One, we're young, right? One, we're arrogant because we think we have it all figured out. Uh, We also, most of us have young kids, which means we're tired and irrational, right? And we need some of you who survived it to come in and help us. But even more than that, and like I'm pleading with you guys now, like, like some of you guys who missed your kid's childhood, we need you to go talk to the dad who's not coming home and say, get home, dad. You know, like to the mom who's so worried about getting her body back. Like some of you moms, we need you to say, go home, mom. Just stop killing yourself at the gym. Like you can eat a piece of pizza, everyone. Like whatever it might be, you know, we need you guys to get us out of all of these ditches that we're falling in or these ways that we're working so hard to try to prove something to the world. And you guys, like, I've never heard somebody who made it to their 60s and say, all of these sacrifices I made to make a name for myself, all of this stuff I did to try to prove something to the world, and I sacrificed my kids on it, I sacrificed my friendships on it, I sacrificed my wife on it, all of it was worth it. I've never heard that. And every generation believes they're different. And so we need you older people. We need you to come and help us. And, but like, we need you to be a little bit nice about it, you know? <laughs> we need you to be a little bit friendly about it. Because as arrogant as we are, as cocky as we are in this younger generation, oh, we're so scared. So what if we screw it up? Like, what if I screw my kids up? What if we're not as good as you guys were? Like, what if, we're not, what if we don't make you proud of us? Like, we have all these fears. And so I need you to look at Priscilla and Aquila and say, hey, can you come over to my house? I want to explain something to you real gently and real calm and real slowly. Now, for you younger people, one, if somebody over 40 in the church calls you this week, you know what's going on, right? (laughs) (laughs) And that's cool, right? Thanks be to God. That's the kind of church we need to be, okay? Um, But watch what Apollos does. Watch how he responds. Verse 27, Apollos had been thinking about going to, (laughs) however you say that, I don't know. I've been trying all week. I don't know. I'm exhausted right now. And the brothers and sisters in Ephesus encouraged him to go. You see who? The brothers and sisters in Ephesus encouraged him to go. Just so funny. Guys should only be friends with guys. Well, well, here you go. Uh, So, side note, I didn't, this is what happens when daddy gets tired. Uh, So, you see, he's listening to other people, right? He's got other people speaking into him, into his life. Uh, And watch what happens when he's there. Again, verse 27. When he arrived there, he proved to be of great benefit to those who, by God's grace, had believed. See what happens? Lone Ranger shows up, right? Fresh out of school in Alexandria, all impressive, preaching. This older couple pulls him aside and says, hey, we won't be friends with you. We want to explain something to you. And after that, all of a sudden, now he's got people speaking into his life and he's listening. And then when he responds to them, now he's being helpful to a group of people. Do you see the humility of Apollos here? He wasn't like, you idiot, man, I went to seminary or like I went to Duke or whatever. I've got a PhD, you know? He received the correction even from some tent makers. We don't know much about Priscilla and Aquila, but they're not given all this impressive resume. Why? God's trying to show us that faith, the life of faith is about building relationships, not about building an impressive resume. And so 
will we younger folks be like Apollos who can receive this kind of correction? Who can receive this kind of, um, can, we, can we be humble and teachable enough that when the old folks who, y'all, it's scary for them to reach out to us too. And when they do, to receive it and listen to it, even if at first blush, we think they're crazy. They've survived. So we at least owe them a little bit of honor, right? Especially if they've like made it through the toddler years, they earned, a, you know, at least an hour long conversation. You know what I'm saying? We can, we can give them that much. The mistake that I see so many of us making, old and young in our church, is thinking that what we believe is enough. And so we build these resumes of whether it's degrees or books we've read or whatever. But listen, if what you know isn't showing up in the way you relate, you do not know much, period. I don't care how many language, if I speak with the tongues of angels, but I don't have what? What's the word that Paul says? Love. It's so simple. What is the core of the Christian faith? Love God, love other people. And if all of your fancy theology has not helped you live into those commands, your fancy theology is worthless. The mission of God itself is a ministry of reconciliation, which is just a cool sounding word about restoring relationships. Sure, first and foremost about God restoring relationship with us, but it's also about God restoring our relationships with one another. And here's what's so fascinating about the mission of God. He sends us out to restore others into relationship with himself. But as we join that mission, it restores our relationships with one another. We see it in Apollos. He's often alone. The gospel's explained. And then he's got friends around him. Do you see that? As he's going and proclaiming, he gets friends around him. Uh, where Paul and Priscilla and Aquila, were they friends because they worked on God's mission together? Or did they work on God's mission together because they were friends? Chicken or the egg, man. You know what I'm saying? Did they become friends doing mission? Or did they do mission to become friends? It, maybe, it's, maybe it's both. What, what if God's mission is fundamentally about building relationships? And what if the way we fundamentally build relationships as God's people is doing the mission of God? You see what I'm saying? And I think sometimes we get so... We put so much pressure on ourselves to think that we're about to go do something big and holy, like this couple who went to the other side of the world. And we thank God for that. And people should go do that. But it seems that Jesus, for most of us, isn't, isn't saying go do new things. He's saying do the same things in a new way. Like, oh, you know how to build tents. Build tents for the glory of God and use that money to go tell people about Jesus. Have you noticed that Paul hardly ever does anything alone? He always has people around him. So here's what I mean. What do you do alone that maybe you could use as a way to further the mission of God? What is the mission of God? Wherever you're creating space for a relationship. So here's some real spiritual examples. Maybe you should stop going to thrift stores alone. Like, what do you know one other person in Southern Indiana that likes going to thrift stores? And what if you said, hey, every Tuesday, we're going to go to the same thrift store and try to become friends with the lady behind the counter. This is what happens. And then maybe we'll invite her to start inviting her to coffee or we'll find out she has some need and then we can start serving, we'll bring diapers. She's a single mom, we'll take care of her. Uh, maybe you're an older person. You know how expensive tools are? Some of you older guys have wood shops or sheds. Well, I don't know what a shed is. I have a house, a small house. But some of you older people have money with tools, right? <laughs> maybe instead of building stuff by yourself, invite a younger person over and teach them how to build stuff and talk to them about being a dad. How to raise kids. You know how scared young dads are? 
know how terrifying it is to go grocery shopping with little kids? Find somebody to go grocery shopping with you. Talk about life. Talk about being a mom. My point is, maybe Jesus isn't asking us to do new things as much as he's asking us to do the same things in a new way. And if we believe that uh, the life of faith is ultimately about building relationships, it will blow our mind to what the mission of God might look like. And I think Jesus begins reframing this conversation with us by what he does for us in communion. Um, So now watch now, this is serious. This isn't just a segue to the service being over. Pay attention here for a second. He takes a loaf of bread, super normal, unless you're gluten-free, you see it every day, right? But he's talking about like the normal stuff of your life. He says to these guys, whenever you eat this, whenever, which like, (laughs) I don't know, your church, like once every seventh new moon, we did communion, right? We do it every week. I think Jesus wasn't saying whenever you do communion. I think he was saying whenever you eat food, right? Whenever you eat bread, remember what I've done for you. Remember my body broken for you. What is he saying? Think of the cross. Remember, whenever you eat food, remember how my body has been broken for you, how your sins have been forgiven. Then he takes a cup of wine. He says, when you drink this, remember what seals your relationship with God. He uses the language of covenant. It's relationship. Remember what's made you friends with God. It's my blood shed for you. Do you see how important this is? He says, take it, eat it, drink it. Remember that I'm with you, that my body and my blood are inside of you. And he says, whenever you eat food, remember this. I love you. I gave myself for you and I'm with you. That's what a big deal this is. Whenever you eat food, remember I'm with you. I love you. So every week we gather, every week we rip off a piece of bread, we dip it in wine, we dip it in juice. Wine will have a piece of twine wrapped around it to remember, yes, that our sins are forgiven, but that the God of the universe lives inside of us. He leads us. He encourages us. He refreshes us. He leads us. He's building us into a beautiful church with deep relationships. Yeah, we're messy. Yeah, we've got mistakes. Yeah, we hurt one another, but he's healing us and restoring us and leading us. Thanks be to God. Our tradition at Sojourn is to come forward, rip off a piece of bread and dip it in wine or juice. Uh, The wine will have twine wrapped around it. You can use whichever you'd like. Um, We'll have gluten-free elements to my left, your right. I'll pray for us, and then you can come forward when you're ready. If you're not a Christian, if you don't believe what we're talking about, we just ask that you'd respect what this means for the Christians and not participate. I'll pray for us, and then Christians, you can come forward as you're ready. Let's pray.